This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery, and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. A week on from their Carabao comeuppance, Newcastle suffer yet more Mancunian shortcomings, this time away to the only team from Manchester, City. We'll review that victory and what it means going forward in today's show, while also having a good old laugh at Manchester United too. It's Monday the 6th of March. I'm Amos Murphy. I'm John Ashley. I'm Andrew Detmer. And this is the City Report podcast. Unbelievable! Manchester United one, Manchester City six. It's two for Jekyll. Tottenham Hotspur three, Manchester City four. They have made the impossible possible. Never felt more like singing the blues and all that, chaps. Um, welcome back. Been a while on my end. I feel like I've not been here in this seat for a good old minute. But as always, at the start of the week, moment of the weekend, John, we'll start with you because uh, there's quite a few to, to sort of pick through, I reckon. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the good and bad in terms of City's weekend. So... I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a positive, um, and for me the moment of of the weekend was uh, Jack Grealish's run and interchange with I, I think it was Harland on the edge of the area, uh, and then a uh, little one two with Harland, and then he, he played a perfect reverse pass uh, into the path of, of Phil Foden, who should have got his second of the day yesterday, but uh, a good save from Nick Pope, but yeah. And just Jack Grealish, loving city life, bursting at the end as well. It's what we love to see, absolutely. Um, Andrew, any any sort of any up in that? Jack Grealish is always a good moment of any weekend. Have you got anything better than that? I mean, I, I can't say that it's better other than for me personally, but I was uh, wise enough to put uh, 10 bucks on Arsenal to win the match the moment they went 2-0 down. To be fair, it was at John's uh, request or uh, prodding in the group chat, which uh, returned a nice uh, £75 return, or $75 return for me. So that's uh, that's not bad. Yeah, nice. That I also had a little tickle uh, for the Arsenal game. Admittedly, though, it was much later on. It was in the 92nd minute at 2-2, which, uh, which was... Uh, 
maybe maybe shorter odds than two 0 but definitely made that ninety seventh minute winner for Arsenal a little bit easy to swallow, which is something we'll chat about um, going forward in today's show. But you know, City in in winning ways, a, a quite a big victory as well. I'd say against Newcastle, it's easy after what happened in the Bournemouth game to lose sight of what was a fantastic performance for City. John, um, I'll start with you in terms of that fixture. 12.30 kickoff or UK time, 12.30 kickoff, like middle of the night in America, I suppose. But it had all the hallmarks of a banana skin. But I think on the whole, having rewatched the the highlights, one shot on target potentially for Newcastle, it was overall a quite a composed, com- comfortable performance from City. But are the odd moments, which I think we have to become accustomed to this season. Major mm. takeaways then for you from that, from that 2-0 victory over Newcastle? Major takeaways. I, the thing I was most encouraged by was the fact that after we went 1-0 up, Newcastle came back into the game quite a bit. Uh, and they, you know, they, they continued to create, op- well, maybe the threat of opportunities, uh, did well in possession. And City altered their game in both personnel and tactics in a way that City allowed City to re- regain control of the game, uh, which at a narrow scoreline like that, I haven't seen City really do for a while. Uh, if you think back to the Forest game and uh, not putting that game to bed, we also, you know, let Forest back into that in, in the way that they attacked because um, we, we kind of got lazy and, and we didn't yesterday. And that was encouraging for me. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think so many times this season we've seen with this system that City set up in, the sort of the three-five-two, three-four, whatever, with Haaland and, and the wingers doing, you know, essentially looking to control the game, albeit the the approach was a little bit different on Saturday against Newcastle. However, Andrew, do you think this is potentially the first time we've seen that system work to its full effect in a I, you know what I'll call it. What I, I do think it was a big game, and I do think it was a big victory. Albeit Newcastle have been struggling lately in terms of getting the lead, diminishing the the opponent's chance of scoring goals, and then eventually picking them off with a, a second goal late on. That was almost like the the perfect the blueprint. To what we've sort of been trying to get towards under Guardiola with with this system, certainly post World Cup. I feel. Yeah, I think a lot of that too has to do with the personnel that were on the pitch and able to do that. Um, you know, I do think that Kevin De Bruyne, and we'll talk about him probably a little bit later. I think that is still a question of does he belong in City's setup present based on his current form. But I do think having Kyle Walker and Nathan Ake as your fullbacks, I think made City far more defensively sound to be able to better control and suppress Newcastle's ability to really hurt us moving forward. But I think the biggest takeaway continues to be for me that City's front three in any match they want to win should be Jack Grealish, Erling Holland, and Phil Foden from left to right. Because that not only gives you the ability to impose yourself on the other team, but those three in transition are a far more deadly attack for me than if you have Riyad Mahrez playing that right-wing position as opposed to Phil Foden. 
yeah, full disclaimer, on tomorrow's show, we've got a sort of a deep dive Foden analysis segment, which will we'll go into his performance against Newcastle in recent form. So we're not skirting past his his performance against Newcastle by not speaking about it, because it was fantastic. We're just going to spend about half an hour doing that tomorrow. So uh, make sure you check that out. Um, but in terms of, in terms of, Andrew mentions the, the, the front three, John. One thing that strikes me so much uh, at the moment is the performances of Ruben Diaz because I almost feel like he's and and I've I've never coined this term before, so it might it might seem a little bit strange, but he's like a spring defender, spring in relation to the the season of the of the year because he's the sort of player you want in your team from this point on towards the end of the campaign when matches have so much riding on them, I think you can probably get away with him in the first half of the season when the intensity isn't as high, you know, barring like a derby game or a trip to Anfield or something like that, he'd be more than useful. But in the matches where every single team has something to fight for or is at least trying to get one up on you when you're in the title race, he's the sort of player who who just in the moments where potentially there could be a, a sort of a pendulum swing and there's a couple of chances Newcastle had on the counter-attack, Ruben Diaz steaming in. And I think City have reaped his his sort of place in the team in the last few weeks. There's a few question marks after the World Cup, fitness concerns, was he getting the right minutes? But especially when you've got Nathan Ake and, and Akanji in there who are two astute, fantastic footballers, However, not at the same time, not necessarily going to galvanise a back line, not going to be able to lead it. I think you saw against Newcastle, Ruben Diaz's, all of his qualities on display in what was another solid performance for him. Yeah, I, I think Ruben is incredibly aggressive in terms of the way that he plays. And, and I, th- I think that there are pros and cons to that, but I think those are outweighed almost just by his presence on the pitch and his just his ability to, as you said, galvanize the back four and keep them motivated and keep them focused. I think the, the one of the issues of having elite ball playing defenders that City do is that they can be very much in their own heads about what they're going to do next and be like, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to bring this ball down. And then I, I see the left winger. Mm. I'm going to ping it out to him or I'm going to give it into Rodri. And they actually are thinking too far ahead of themselves. I think Diaz keeps everybody in the moment uh, and focuses on the defending piece before then turning it into, okay, what's our next angle of attack? Um, one of the, one thing I will say as well, though, is I think, the the xg from yesterday from newcastle's perspective actually lied just because they had a couple of chances where joel linton had one in the second half that he just didn't get on the end of but he was six yards out and he just missed it and uh callum wilson had one from a a trippier headed cut back in the first half as well that he just didn't get on the the end of properly that were very 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 good chances and that is still a concern that they were very well constructed that City were maybe standing off a bit. And I think Diaz has reduced the amount of times that that is happening during games, but it's, it is still continuing to happen, especially in that the both, both of those balls came from in between the left, the left back and left center back area. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that because I, I, to be totally honest, and it probably is the 12 30 kickoff. I don't, I, I think I remember the Joe Linton one, but I don't remember 
the the op- the other one, and, and I can't really remember the Joe Linton one in, in clear detail anyway, and, and I think it, it goes to show that, Andrew, I'll bring you in on this, with Diaz's presence there, those moments which I think before, I'm trying to think back, before he came back into the team, it felt like City were conceding chances like that almost every week and, and sort of in, in 10 minute segments or at least in short bursts, there'd be quite a few and most of the time they'd score. I think what needs to be said as well at this point, a clean sheet in the league, which obviously took Edison to 100 clean sheets, which I think he's been sat on for about the best part of a month, maybe longer. Ruben Diaz elevates that, that those sort of players and no, he might not be the best footballer in terms of the ball at his feet and there's a couple of times he, he gave the ball away trying to play those hero balls through uh, through the lines into midfield but what he does do is he, he shores things up in a sense that is very un-Manchester City-like at times but is so crucial when you are challenging well for City this season it's free fronts but looking to get into the latter part of the season with trophies and, and silverware on the line. For me I think the the issue isn't that Ruben Diaz is not as good of a footballer as some of our other defenders, because all of our other defenders are not as good defenders other than I think John Stones is not far off Diaz in his prime, nor are they as good leaders. Although again, I think Stones is not far behind him, which is why I think they as a pairing work the best because you get Stones allowing you to play out of the back well, but you still have this level of defensive fortitude next to Diaz and they complement each other really well. I love Diash. I think he has really he has improved City's ability to win these type of matches compared to where we were while he was out. The only issue for me is that the couple of moments I was nervous came down to, you know, Akanji it was a shrewd pickup when we had some injuries and he is a pretty solid Premier League level defender, but he is not anywhere near the level of Stones or Laporte. And there were a couple of moments yesterday for me where there's particularly one where Kanji let a ball go past him that was going across the box that Newcastle easily could have buried had they arrived just slightly sooner. And so as good as Diesh has been, I do think the one weak spot on our defense yesterday was just a Kanji at that right center back role. We can't, you know, if John Stones comes back, I don't know that there's any stopping this team in terms of momentum. I think teams are going to have a really hard time if you go with Walker, Stones, Diesh, and Ake in his current form, and the other players up front are doing what they're presently doing. But for me right now, Akanji did look a little bit like the weak spot on that defense. Yeah, and, and that has been the case all season, I feel. And, you know, there's all sorts of discontent behind scenes that we keep sort of parroting on about Laporte being one of those um, Foot, Foot Mercato I think did a report this week suggesting that he's uh, they, they labelled him a, a luxury bench player or something along those lines and, and I think you know Akanji next season's role is going to be much different to it is this season but, but, but going back to the victory as a whole John before we move on to part two um, do you think if you if you cast your mind back to the Tottenham at home game and, and the and the what at the time felt like strange comments from Guardiola about the sort of the passion, the desire, the commitment within the squad and on the pitch in terms of uh, the sort of the way they behaved and looked after the teammates, there was a moment in the second half. Um, Jack Grealish gets hacked down, and a, and a and a typical melee. It was nothing much to it, you know. A, a few uh, a few 
weak little fists being thrown about. Nothing, nothing that was uh, too untoward. However, do you think that sort of that passion, that commitment, has returned a little bit in recent weeks? City have have sort of since those uh, since, since since that. Um, that, that Tottenham game, uh, the away game, that is. Uh, okay, my Tottenham game's mixed up. But since that Tottenham away game, City have obviously stayed unbeaten, albeit with some disappointing results in there. However, seeing Haaland sprint the best part of 50 metres to get involved in the scrap with Dan Byrne was, was fantastic viewing. And I think, you know, going into the final part of the season, it, it's good to see those, those, those levels return a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And I think... Um... You know, Haaland, who plays alongside Grealish every week, we I think we've seen from from the very start of the season that those two definitely have a connection. They have similar attitudes, as we saw at the, at the final towards the end of the, of the game yesterday in the corner. Uh, they have similar attitudes towards and how much they enjoy their football. But I also see I think that Haaland sees how much Jack gets kicked every single week, um, and and the lack of protection that. Uh, he gets from referees for that and you know when, when a player then decides to carry that on after a standard foul on Jack Grealish it's, I imagine he just had enough um, and did what you know a lot of fans would do in that situation <laughs> and um, although personally I, I probably wouldn't attempt that on Dan, Dan Byrne but then I'm, <laughs> I'm not Erling Haaland or Amos Murphy height so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew, Dan Burns a little bit weird, isn't he? Um, I, I, and I mean that in the nicest sense. I just thought it, th- th- there's something really sort of unnerving about seeing a man of his height bundling up and down the touchline. It just shouldn't happen. It's a it's a freak of nature, and, and like alongside I don't know a hurricane or a tsunami. I literally turned to the one Newcastle fan that was at the pub with us watching this match, and I go. It was after Foden had cooked Dan Burns. And I was like, who is your left back? Because I assumed that was a center back playing out of place because of his size. Because you're right. That is not the height of anyone that should ever be positioned anywhere close to the touchline. And so, you know, it it was fun. And I feel like it plays into Foden's uh, strengths pretty well to be able to, uh, you know, just absolutely put Dan Burns on skates because... Someone that size is not keeping up with uh, Phil Foden in uh, full flight. Burn got burned. Um, right, okay, stick around for part two where we will be chatting about Kevin De Bruyne. Welcome back to the City Report podcast, your home for our daily Manchester City content. A little look ahead to the week then. As I mentioned, tomorrow we've got Phil Foden analysis, which is something everybody is going to enjoy. That'll be Adam and I looking at Phil Foden's performances and asking what can come next for the little Stockfordian lad. Um Wednesday, a quick a quick shout out for anybody that wants to get in questions early. We've not done a listener question special for a while, so that will be taking up our Wednesday slot. And as we get into the week later down the line, we'll be looking ahead to City's trip to Crystal Palace at the weekend. Um, Andrew, back to the Newcastle fixture then. I would say, and I said this at the time on Saturday, it is probably the first time, and I'm going to be careful with my words here because I'm not sort of coming to on he's sweeping I'm not I'm not saying he's finished I'm not saying he's done I'm not saying that he needs to be sold in the summer but it was probably the first game ever I've looked at Kevin De Bruyne's performance and gone we might be about to be 
on the decline with this man. The good news being, his peak is so high, it's going to take a mighty long time for him to get to a level where he's no longer useful for City. But I'm not quite sure right now he is one of the dependables as he has been in recent years. So I want to be careful as well, but I think the interview that Kev gave in the lead up to the World Cup that a lot of people looked at and said, well, that's poor form. How can you kind of tell fans to not expect much out of you before the World Cup and all of these things? There's a line he said that has stuck with me since we have seen this, what I would say seems to be Kev's consistent level over the past, basically since the World Cup. And he says, was talking about how much football they played and says, after a while, it eats you up. I think Kev, because the level of a competitor that he is and how intense and serious he takes this, the amount of football that dude has played in, you know, he's not that old. Like, he is not so old that you should expect, oh, you know, that the love is gone. But I think truly because he the top flight has changed so much and you you play all the time, it's always intense. These title races we've had with Liverpool – Next couple of years, like that has to take a toll on you. And I think we may just see that Kev doesn't have the joy anymore. And if you don't have the joy, I think it's a lot harder to have all that pressure on you with the way that he is. And so to me, I don't know that it's a, a physicality issue or that he's tired from a, you know, he's played too much football and his body has broken down standpoint. I think it is entirely a mental focus and like approach to life. And I don't hold that against him because I, to do what th- this team has done, since Pep has kind of come in after his first season and to be at the levels that they are and play so much football and then have the world collapse around you with the pandemic and then keep going, doing that, not seeing your family for large periods of time, like that has to take a toll. And to me, I just wonder if that's what we're seeing is that he doesn't love the sport as much anymore. So it's harder to be fully 110% committed all the time. And once that's not there, you're going to see a dramatic drop off regardless of how skilled a player is. The the caveat to that, John, of course, is that he's still having a season which for most other players, for mere mortals, well, I suppose Premier League players aren't mere mortals, but amongst sort of the regular crop of Premier League talent would be considered an absolutely phenomenal campaign. He's played 24 matches, he's got four goals, he's got 12 assists for comparison. 2020-21, um, when De Bruyne won the PFA Players Player of the Year, he, he got six goals and, and got 12 assists. So he's, sort of, he's on course for what could potentially be a, a PFA Players Player in, in previous seasons, uh, win a, a season in terms of comparisons, you know, he could potentially go on to break the assist record with Haaland in there with, with, with what is it, 13 matches remaining. He only needs eight to match his own tally. So he's still setting levels that for other players are sort of unmatchable, even in their best ever seasons. However, it does feel like, and perhaps this has been his career in a nutshell, he's just been doing it more often. With De Bruyne, he could be quite poor for 70 75 80% of the match but those mm. that 20% is where he performs because he does something that absolutely no other player is capable of doing and even on his bad day does city have somebody who can who is worth subbing subbing him out for and and sort of replacing him basically a city a better team with de bruyne in the in the squad or not it is i, I think it is that 
the hardest question to answer about City at the moment. And one of the things that I've noticed, because I think that if you look at De Bruyne's passing accuracy statistics over the course of his his career at City, they're on the lower end. In pr- they're probably the lowest of, of all of City's midfielders uh, who played consistently during that time because he is making more high-risk passes. That is his job, is to try and uh, break through lines you know take defenders out of the game with his passing but and i agree with you as well that he is doing he is still doing that 20 percent of the time however that does seem to be later and later on in games um and i think that that is part of the the issue right now is that city are you know, there were a couple of occasions yesterday where City had fantastic breakaway opportunities. Foden, Grealish, Haaland, all running full sprint down the pitch and not a difficult pass by De Bruyne's standards, like unlocks all three of them. And he passes it to a Newcastle player. Like, to do that in the first half and early into the second half... It, it puts more pressure on the rest of the team um, when we could have been up earlier. And I think in previous seasons, we have been up earlier and we've been able to rest the Bruyne more. So I, I think the longer you leave him in the game, the, the higher the risk you're taking, but also you're tiring him more and therefore he's maybe not going to be able to do it the next game as well. He also hasn't been injured that much this season. And so previous seasons, he's had an injury, which he's come back from and been you know, it's taken in three or four games, but then, then, then there's Wolves away last season. You know, twenty-one, twenty-two. So, if he can, if he can find those passes earlier on in the games, he's going to get more rest, and City are going to be more comfortable through uh, through through games, unlike they have been in pre- in previous weeks. Yeah, what's that? Was it? Um, oh, the ice skater who had who had a targeted attack. Someone tried to injure them. Um, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya you, Harding. Yeah, are you saying that needs to happen to Kev? Does someone need to, to rule him out for two or three weeks so he can have a little bit of rest and then he can come I'm back? Just, oh. Yeah, just send him on holiday or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... Yeah. yeah, I don't think we need to put him on the, the injury list <laughs> to just say, hey, Kev, you know, it seems like maybe you could enjoy a good three-week spell on a beach in Greece somewhere with your lovely family. Go do mm-hmm. that. We'll be here when you get back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, maybe they won't be a big game against Leipzig coming up. Which he, that that that's for me what I'm sort of getting at uh, this season is the fact that perhaps Kevin De Bruyne isn't needed in the games where City. And I say that this season hasn't been the case, but statistically, are likely to win. You know, maybe he gets his stat padding up a little bit. He gets some more assists, and he he does go on to break that that record sort of. Um, and, and and finishes the season with fantastic numbers. But I feel like, Andrew, if City are going to be successful this season, the big moments, the big Champions League games, the big title-deciding matches, City have to have De Bruyne at his absolute best. Because otherwise, I don't see who's going to play those passes into Haaland. And we saw it against Newcastle to bring it back to the, the main topic and the main focus. When De Bruyne's passes, and and to be fair to him, he was, as John mentions, attempting those high-risk passes in between the the Newcastle defence. 
for whatever reason, Newcastle defending well or, or them not quite coming off. It, it didn't work for City and Haaland that day. But, you know, a Champions League semi-final when it's end-to-end, if we have anything like that Real Madrid game again, De Bruyne has to be at his absolute best. Or City, for me, this season are going to have quite a disappointing end to the campaign. So I, I agree with you somewhat. I think you know, if you had Kevin De Bruyne at his full flight in this team... Yes, they're obviously better. But if there is even a chance that he is not going to be at that level in a match, I actually think that Kev makes us worse because other players look to him. One of City's best performances for me is coming down from 2-0 against Spurs, which happened without Kev on the pitch. And I don't think it happens if he is on the pitch because other players expect him to be the one to do this. And so... I actually would say that I think City's chances of winning big matches this season right now until we see Kev turn his form around are, is actually to not have Kev on the pitch. I think I think Ilkay Gundogan and Bernardo Silva in midfield along with Rodri and then Foden and Grealish and Holland in front, that to me, you are much more likely to win because yes, the ball may not get to Holland, as often without Kev on the pitch. But as John said earlier, Kev has repeatedly just put the ball right to the other team. And against Newcastle, it didn't cost us. But you do that against the Real Madrid. You do that against a PSG and at the wrong moment to the wrong player. And you just, you gave away a goal. And I to don't, me, I don't I just, think it's that for me. I don't like, you know, I, I think that was a, maybe a four on three situation that city had in that instance it wasn't like we committed eight bodies forward and that we were like we were going to get counted on again it was more that i just think kevin playing that role um I, i'm thinking about the, the role that he played against uh bristol city in the week and and the opponents obviously have a a bearing on that uh but he has a freer role when Haaland is not in there. I think there is a pressure and a, a, you know, definitely when Haaland is in the team as well to try and find Haaland more often than, and, and Pep's talked about that as well. And so De Bruyne kind of, you know, an informed De Bruyne finds, finds those runs and picks him out. So whether or not Kev should, I, I, I would more question the role that Kev plays than, his, his position in the team. Yeah, yeah. Um, quickly then, before we get out of here, pivoting to the, the sort of the wider title race, obviously I hinted at it um, and everyone should know by now, Arsenal coming from 2-0 down against Bournemouth. Um, Andrew, I think you and I uh, had contrasting views on this um, in terms of, of what it means. For me, I saw that and I said at 2-0, I, I said at 2-0 for Arsenal when they were 2-0 down, if Arsenal go on and win this game, it's sort of ironclad proof for me that they'll win the title because I, it's four or five times now. I think they've, they've sort of scored late goals twice in their last three Premier League matches. They've, they've scored injury time winners. Are you as pessimistic as me? And, and given your previous history with uh, what, what what was the term you used a couple of weeks ago? A, a, a happy a happy optimist or something like that? I assume you probably. Uh, I'm not. a serial optimist. Yeah, yeah. Sure there it is. Oh, Siri's just had a go at me as well at the same time. Uh, a serial optimist is is the title race done and dusted? Absolutely not. 
it's that's a it's a crazy thing to say that with 12 matches remaining a team that has shown that they are there to be taken advantage of by a team that is not the best like Bournemouth to me yeah when they're 2-0 down and to then see them win like it sucks because you were like you're like oh come on but if Arsenal win that match 3-0 or 3-1 and City win this 2-0 no one is saying oh the title race is over we still have to play them head to head. They still have several tough matches and a tough run in to go. They're get, balancing European football as well. They have a tighter squad than anyone else. There is way too much to say that the title race at this point in time is anything more than a coin flip. I'm not saying that Arsenal won't win it. Just to me saying that City aren't in there and shouldn't be fighting tooth and nail every single game week in and week out. That, that's just absolutely insane to me. Hmm, yeah. Um, John, final word for you. You can swing the balance of probability. I, I, I just feel like if someone had told me in 2017-18 after Raheem Sterling curled the winner into the top corner, and, and to be honest, I don't even know what the gap with United at that point was. It was probably much bigger than it is to from City to Arsenal now. But if someone had told me at that point, City would not go on to win the title at the end of the season. I'd have, I'd have been laughing in your face saying it, that it's absolute fallacy. Obviously, Arsenal aren't going to go into a 100-point season by any means. But sometimes, for me, I just feel with this silly game of football, things are written in the stars. And, and I don't know, it feels like that's the case for Arsenal. I don't want to start your week on a, on a downward note, everybody. But um, have you got a little bit more optimism to me to, to send me away, smiling a little bit more? If I remember correctly, that game was also like four days before City went to Old Trafford. So I think there was an additional dynamic there where... United had this like, oh, we're we're back in it. Um and we could we could get up to like maybe three points behind City if we win, uh if we beat them at home on the weekend. And then City got that last minute winner. And I think that just deflated United and just bolstered City a lot. Uh and after that first game at uh, that first derby, that did feel like the title was very much heading towards City. Arsenal, who haven't won the title for what? Just under. They. It definitely feels like the momentum is with them, and they believe that they can just keep pulling out these these last minute wins. However, it does seem that like it, it that 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 doesn't seem for it for a team of their just where they're at in their evolution right now, it seems a big ask to continue to do that. That's going to be how they're continuing to win games. If they win their next three or four games, three nil with, you know, bringing off all their top players with half an hour to go because that they're already clear. That's a different matter to if they're kind of eking out. I, yeah. So I guess I'm kind of somewhere in between, um, they didn't look particularly great against City, and they've still got to go to Anfield. Uh, uh, although City still have to host Liverpool, um, so yeah, the, the the Liverpool factor is now coming back into it. It, it, it. What looked like a an easier game against them now looks like okay. Liverpool with confidence is is a different animal. So I, I'm I'm going to just sit on the fence on this one. I'm afraid. Oh. 
Liverpool deciding a title race after all. We thought we'd been, we thought we'd escape those days. Um, right, lads and lasses, that will do for today's episode. Like I said, big, big week on the City Report podcast coming up. If you haven't already, hit subscribe. If you haven't already as well, please hit a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much to Andrew and John. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, we'll see you later. Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end of season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running. And just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.